Good Bone Health makes active aging possible. Join us for inspiring conversations from diverse perspectives in osteoporosis from patients, healthcare providers, caregivers, policymakers, researchers, advocates, and innovators. Protect your ability to live your best life. The information and opinions expressed in Bone Talk are not intended to replace the services of trained and qualified health professionals or to be a substitute of medical advice of physicians. You may review the Bone Health and Osteoporosis Foundation's full medical disclaimer at bonehealthandosteoporosis.org. Hi everyone, welcome to Bone Talk. I'm Claire Gill, CEO of the Bone Health and Osteoporosis Foundation. Joining me today is Dr. Howard Sesso, a distinguished figure in the fields of epidemiology, preventative medicine, and nutrition research. Currently serving as an associate epidemiologist at Brigham and Women's Hospital, an associate professor of medicine at Harvard Medical School, and an associate professor of epidemiology at the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. Dr. Sesso has dedicated much of his career to unraveling the intricate connections between lifestyle factors and health outcomes. Renowned for his expertise in designing and conducting randomized clinical trials, he has significantly contributed to groundbreaking studies such as the Women's Health Initiative and the VITAL trial. With a publication record exceeding 350 papers, Dr. Sesso is a sought-after expert in nutrition's role in preventing cardiovascular disease, cancer, and other aging-related outcomes. His commitment to evidence-based research and passion for advancing public health knowledge make him a valuable source of insights in the realm of wellness and preventative medicine. Dr. Sesso, thank you so much for joining me today. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. So, Tell me a little bit more about your background and your expertise, and how did you get into this field, and particularly focusing on clinical trials? Yeah, it's a, it's an evolution, like many of us who are in this area of research in epidemiology and clinical trials. You're not really born when you're young saying, I want to be an epidemiologist. You have to try first try and pronounce it and then figure out what it actually entails. But in my case, I always had a longstanding interest in clinical research, medical research. And for me, it was really incredibly important to figure out what type of research I want to do, especially something that was applied. So when I was, this doesn't relate as much to bone health specifically, but at a very young age, my father had the first of three separate heart attacks and had several strokes. And so at a very young age, I was very much interested in the role of nutrition and lifestyle and how that impacts the types of things that we get as we get older. And through college and then getting my master's in public health and then eventually my PhD in epidemiology, I realized that epidemiology in particular was a a very nice way to merge my interests in medical research, applying it in a much more broader public health context. And um, I was always and continue to be very interested in the role of nutrition and dietary supplements, given the fact that we all care about what we eat and we're all very, I would say, defensive and proactive about talking about what we have, whether it's a Thanksgiving meal or other meals that we have throughout the year. But then dietary supplements in particular interest of mine, and especially it's evolved into clinical trials that I've been involved in directly and indirectly, because a very large segment of our population in the United States regularly takes dietary supplements. And a lot of times the evidence that actually supports those dietary supplements doesn't really align with a lot of what the labels actually say, or sometimes what you'll hear in the news or through 
you know, websites and other sources of information that are out there. So I'm particularly interested in the role of dietary supplements, not just on bone health, but in aging outcomes as well, because we take these supplements without any knowledge of what they actually do. That is so important. Well, first of all, I think it's such a wonderful way to honor your father and his experiences by going on to study how you could help others make an impact on improving their health by figuring out what people eat and uh, how that impacts our health and particularly, like you said, around cardiovascular and other major diseases. So kudos to you for doing that. And as I shared earlier, this is an area that is so important and that we at the BHOF get the most questions about from patients. We all want to do something related to finding out that we have this condition and taking a pill is often, you know, again, something that seems easy to people and we turn to supplements really more so than we even do to medical or pharmaceutical treatment. But as you said, it's not regulated the same way at all. And the science isn't always as strong about some of those supplements that you said, like you said, we take them, I would say so many people in the population take them without even really thinking about it. So the work you're doing is so important. We'll probably need like 10 podcasts to cover all of the things I would love to talk to you about. But let's talk a little bit about the Women's Health Initiative and particularly regarding calcium and vitamin D and the supplementation for calcium and vitamin D about fractures. How has that changed and evolved and how does that have helped inform what we know about these two nutrients and bone health? Yeah, so thanks, Claire. You know, I think first and foremost, it's important to distinguish two different types of studies that were often reported in the news that you'll hear. One is what we call observational studies. So these are studies where you might have a large group of people that you send some questionnaires to or complete forms and you follow them for different health outcomes. They're important studies. They're incredibly important contributions, but they're observational in nature. So we might ask a question, for example, about hey, are you taking vitamin D? Are you taking calcium? And you might say yes or no and indicate the amount that you're taking. But we're relying on what you're doing without us essentially, do I dare say, playing God and saying this is what you're going to do or not do. Clinical trials, and in particular randomized clinical trials for which the Women's Health Initiative is a really important example of one, asks the same questions about vitamin D and calcium, but not in an observational manner. Instead, it's essentially taking a group of people, in this case, middle-aged and older women, and saying, if you're willing to enroll in the study, we're going to give you some pills, in this case, maybe calcium, 400 milligrams per day of calcium, or 400 IUs per day of vitamin D, but you're not going to know what you're taking. So you might be taking a placebo, or you might be taking the active component. Mm -hmm. So that addresses a very important concern that happens when they are not clinical trials. And this is where WHI and other studies are much better equipped to answer these questions. In an observational study, we get worried about the fact that, for example, Claire, if you say that I choose to take or I'm choosing to take vitamin D, well, why are you doing that? Is it for some of the reasons you alluded to before? It's because yeah, I was diagnosed with something. I had a result that suggests that I had 25-hydroxy-D measure and I was told it's a little low. I need to kick it up a little bit. That's a very different reason than to simply take a segment of a section of people and say, take this, you don't know what you're taking, and let's see what the health outcomes are. 
the trials such as the Women's Health Initiative eliminate what we call confounding, which is that there are these other explanations to the data that go beyond the simple choice or not to take a vitamin D, a combined vitamin D and calcium supplement as was tested in the Women's Health Initiative. The other thing I just want to mention as a preamble to the WHI results is that when you think about these trials and having been involved in it both on the, as an investigator, as a lead of these, you're always in a bit of a quandary, which is like, what do I test? So if you think about the Women's Health Initiative in particular, it tested 400 milligrams per day of calcium in combination with 400 IUs per day of vitamin D. I'm willing to bet that whether you or any listeners out there are going to the CVS or Walgreens or wherever you might purchase the dietary supplements, you'd be very hard pressed to find those actual amounts anymore because they've gone up. That's right. 500, yeah. 1,000 milligrams of calcium. It could be 1,000, 2,000 or more IUs of vitamin D. So one of the challenges that the Women's Health Initiative faces, the results are actually quite important, but the amounts, the doses of vitamin D and calcium that were tested aren't necessarily aligned with how we are typically viewing those supplements today. And that's a unique challenge that we have when we're conducting these trials. Can I ask, why did you choose those amounts then? Yeah, so I can't speak. I was a research assistant on the Women's Health Initiative as it was getting going, but I was not in the room where it happened when the decisions for the amounts um, were being made. But I can tell you that supplement science is quite interesting on its own. And in the case of vitamin D and calcium, at the time, the belief was that very modest amounts ought to be sufficient. Anything that you're getting above and beyond kind of your usual diet should be enough to result in the types of objective markers that you can measure and some of the outcomes that we're seeing. Okay. However, one of the challenges with supplement science that we see is that there's always a perception that you can just go higher and higher. Mm. And there's always a, presum a presumption, especially with essential vitamins and minerals such as vitamin D and calcium that, oh, if you take more, there's no harm for it. It just, maybe it helps even more. But again, we don't really know, especially right. when we look at calcium and vitamin D, what that real what we call dose response relationship actually is. So in the case of WHI, it was really kind of where the science was at this time back in the early 1990s for their decision to go with the 400 milligrams and 400 IUs per day of calcium and vitamin D in combination. Mm -hmm. I think if that trial were being started today, my guess would be they'd probably be a little bit higher with the amounts that they tested. But that being said, the Women's Health Initiative still does represent a randomized clinical trial. So whether you agree or disagree with the amounts that were tested, it was still as a randomized clinical trial. So those results still carry important clinical relevance. And just to remind you, in the Women's Health Initiative, there are many different pieces to it. There was a hormone replacement therapy piece. There was a dietary intervention, a low-fat diet. But more notably, the calcium and vitamin D trial that was looking at a primary outcome fractures included more than 36,000 U.S. men and women around the country. So this was a very large study. And of course, these are always not just large undertakings, but long-term undertakings. It takes many years for us to accrue the, the results from these. And you have to appreciate that in a trial where you're trying to prevent falls by taking vitamin D and calcium supplementation, you have to do the trial and wait for those events to happen just kind of counterintuitive. We have to wait for those events to happen so you can actually analyze the data to compare the effects in 
the two groups. Mm -hmm. So I think that's another important consideration here. And in fact, the Women's Health Initiative lasted on average about seven years. So imagine, and this is where I have greater respect for the participants sometimes than we as the investigators, because you're asking people to take these pills for such a long period of time without really knowing, first of all, what you're taking, as well as what the actual effects of these supplements are. So that being said, in the Women's Health Initiative, when we compared those women randomized to take calcium and vitamin D in combination of these, we'll say comparatively lower doses than we view today, versus a placebo, it depended on where the fracture was for the results to have some slight differences. Overall, what was interesting was that overall, if you just look at what we call an intention-to-treat analysis, what this means is that if I randomized you today, Claire, to take calcium and vitamin D, whether you take it religiously for seven years, Mm -hmm. or after a week, you're like, eh, I'm done, or halfway through, you decide to not take it anymore, we treat you as if you're taking it for all seven years. Interesting. The reason for that is it's trying to reflect clinical practice. So if you're visiting, say, an endocrinologist, you're a primary care provider, and they're saying, hmm, you know, I think you should start taking this this particular supplement that we're testing, you say, okay, you leave the office. What are the long-term effects of that? Mm -hmm. And what's interesting is that in the intention-to-treat analysis, we found that there were no statistically significant benefits for taking the combination of calcium and vitamin D versus placebo. Now, that being said, there were there was what we call directionality. There was some suggestions of benefit, particularly for hip fracture, where there was a 12% reduction, but this was not statistically significant, as well as overall for, for the overall total fracture rate. So this is any fracture anywhere, any part of your body. It was only a 4% reduction and it wasn't significant, but you also have to appreciate that there were more than 4,000 fractures that were reported over the course of time. We know this is a common condition that we need to figure out ways to prevent. The final piece, and then I'll pause for a moment, is that the other way that we analyze clinical trials, besides what we call this intention to treat analysis, is what we call essentially kind of a per protocol or compliance adjusted analysis. And what this means is that let's say, we'll pick on you for a moment here, Claire, you were randomized into the trial again, you start by taking it, and then three years in, you decide, I'm tired of taking it, Right. I can't take the pills anymore. Or you went to your doctor and they strongly suggested, since you didn't know what you were taking, you should absolutely be taking calcium and vitamin D. Okay. This other type of analysis excludes or stops following you when you decide to stop being compliant with what's being tested. Got it's it. a subtle difference, but it's an important difference. It's, it's reflecting what actually happened when you're taking the combination of calcium and vitamin D. Okay. Now, the overall results didn't really change in terms of the story, but what did happen is that for hip fracture, if you look in these compliance-based analyses, for when you were actually taking the calcium and vitamin D versus placebo, there was a significant 29% reduction for those taking the combination of calcium and vitamin D, even at this lower amount. Yeah. The other outcomes still had the signals, but were not statistically significant still. So it's a bit of a mixed message. You know, there was an assumption that if you take calcium and vitamin D, it would be beneficial. There was the directionality, but we probably realistically needed an even bigger trial to detect a very small to moderate effect at best. Yeah. 
So there's a lot to unpack in what you just shared. And yeah. one of the things that I think will be really interesting and sort of how to, we could, again, spend a whole, a whole podcast on how to understand how the science of trials work. So again, you're sharing things about statistical significance, which I now, after 10 years of working in bone health and working with scientists, understand kind of what that means and how that contributes. But I know that's kind of, you know, it's hard for the general consumer to understand when we say those things, you know, doesn't it's like, does it matter or doesn't it matter? The mm-hmm. other, but again, it, it's a very important part of understanding clinical trial results. And I think so sometimes when our job at BHOF is to try to make it in language that everybody can understand as far as, well, what does this mean for you directly type of thing? And so while people are listening, I know are probably like, wait, what does that mean? We'll get Mm -hmm. to all of that. But again, I think Dr. Sesso really needed to explain how these results came about and what, what those studies were sharing with us. The other part of that that I think is really interesting that I also needed to learn as a just a consumer about the trials and trials results and things like the Women's Health Initiative is it's also, correct me if I'm wrong, but it's also when we're we're looking at apical recommendations for these interventions, like whether or not someone should take calcium and vitamin D, whatever, it's looking at what is the benefit for the general healthy population of adults, correct? Right. And so what we're saying when we're looking at these, and you need to when we're looking at these huge trials, as you said, tens of thousands of people over seven years, you know, the recommendations coming out are very specific, or making, sorry, are, are generalities around what would be needed for a generally healthy adult, whether taking 400 milligrams of calcium and vitamin D combined made any difference for someone who didn't need calcium and vitamin D potentially in their diet, right? They're getting what they need from their diet. And so I think for our audience listening about these studies and how they impact what we should or should not be doing as osteoporosis patients is a little bit different in that you're moving into a different category within the study when you're a person who might have already fractured three times and done these things yeah. and your doctor says to you, hey, you need to take calcium and vitamin D. We're not saying that that's wrong. We're saying mm-hmm. these giant studies are helping the entire medical field determine what are the values of these supplements for the general healthy population and whether or not everyone needs them or should be taking them. Or again, how do we know if the general population could take these supplements and then we see a huge decline in something or benefit, then it makes sense. And then we can say, hey, everyone should be eating a low-fat diet to prevent cardiovascular disease. You know, those are the kinds of things we need to do. So I think that's really important just to sort of say as we're talking through these results, because this was a significant study of looking at the role of calcium and vitamin D, and particularly in that outcome of preventing fractures. But that was sort of, what's the benefit of taking calcium and vitamin D? If you weren't at risk, really at the high risk of having a fracture, taking calcium and vitamin D is not going to, supplementing with calcium and vitamin D is not going to be any better for you, right? Is kind of what we're getting at. 
Yeah, you raised three incredibly important points in what you just mentioned. First of all, the first most important thing to remember is that dietary patterns matter far more than the dietary supplements that you take. It starts with a good base diet, a diverse diet, colorful diet. You can have diverse, again, it's everything in moderation, right? You know, sometimes diets can often feel often very restrictive, but what I often like to try and convey is the point that embrace the diversity of your diet and that can be to your advantage. Now, sometimes people are a little bit pickier eaters than others and that's completely fair. But before you turn to supplements, especially dietary supplements, it's more important to start by evaluating your diet and making very good practical steps forward to improve that because that will always be a more beneficial way to impact your health, not just in terms of bone health, but in terms of total body health, aging well and having vitality. That being said, I think the other important point that is important here is that when these large-scale trials get done, when they first come out, they tend to be deliberately oversimplistic. So Mm. as you correctly highlight, if you look at the overall results of the Women's Health Initiative, one would argue, what's going on for this combination of calcium and vitamin D? But it tends to ignore the subtlety of dietary supplements and even medications that we take, which is that the idea that there is a simple one-size-fits-all solution for any health outcome through a dietary supplement or even a medication or a type of statin for that matter is way too simplistic and and reductionist. What we now appreciate more and more, and on the research side, we're trying to delve deeper into is that who are the patients that would benefit the most from a healthier diet that emphasizes calcium and vitamin D intake and other nutrients, of course. Right, right. Who are the people that might benefit from perhaps considering a calcium and or vitamin D supplement? Is it on the basis of their existing bone health? Is it on the basis of 25-hydroxy-D levels that might have been measured by their clinician? That is the direction that we're trying to move toward. It's almost like a form of what we call precision nutrition or even precision supplementation to get even more specific. That Can we better target those individuals that we believe will benefit from the types of interventions that we test, not just in the Women's Health Initiative, but in many of the other trials that I've been involved in and others that have been done by certainly colleagues around the world. So I think that's a point that is often overlooked. The third thing I want to say is that remember with not just clinical trials, but many studies is that there's typically an oversimplification of the messaging. Mm-hmm. What often happens, now think about it, even even if you're, if you're writing stories for a magazine or a newspaper, you write the story, there's a separate person that's actually responsible for the headline. Right, right. right? And attention span is a little bit less than it used to be, let's just say on average from a decade, two decades, three decades ago. You get such small little snippets of information, whether it's through social media or even watching the news. In the case of the Women's Health Initiative, there was a big emphasis on kind of total fracture. But if you think about it, there are many different bones, for better or for worse, there are many different things. We have more than just one bone in the body, right? Mm-hmm. We have different bones in the body. And we know that the way that, whether it's through diet or supplementation, which is say calcium and vitamin D, how those nutrients are absorbed and where 
it might be more or less beneficial in the body also differs and matters. So in the case of hip fracture, when we're seeing that calcium and vitamin D still might have a role in the Women's Health Initiative, a meaningful role for reducing hip fracture, it's important to appreciate that there's a difference between falling on your hip and having a fracture versus a grandchild or a friend threw a ball at you and happened to hit you wrong and you, and something kind of randomly happens. Right, right. So that's often lost, not just in the studies, but also the media plays a role in this too in trying to convey the proper messaging. And it's not to say that the media has it wrong, but there's usually just not enough time and bandwidth or even attention right. span for people to they're understand not the, nuance. the nuances of it. As you said, they're exactly. going to pull a headline that's going to get them the most eyes on the article, and then that's it. And like you said, it's fascinating how much detail there is in these giant studies and then how to extrapolate the important aspects of that study, as you said, can come years later. And I know this is not specific to calcium and vitamin D, but you know, in my other world of the National Menopause Foundation, when we're talking about the Women's Health Initiative and what happened with HRT, yeah. what we now know Again, 20 years later, looking at the data and what we pulled out, it's the science is very different. The recommendation is very different. And so I think the important thing is we need these big, intense, controlled, as you said, studies to give us a baseline for which we can then dive deeper into certain populations, into certain areas to be able to look at what can specifically come out of them. So it's- Yeah, I mean, sorry, I mean, we all want one study to answer all of our questions and we're done. Right, right. right. We know what we did. Here's what you have to take. Here's what you don't have to take and we're, and we're good. The reality and People laugh when I say this, but it's entirely true is that, you know, you, you conduct a study with the goal of answering the questions as you know it today, but then also asking more new questions that have to be answered tomorrow because the science is constantly evolving. And there's a certain level of impatience for people to get the answer. Yeah. And especially with supplements and especially with when you're diagnosed with a condition, doesn't matter what it is, you want the answer. Going back to the example of my father, his joke all the time while he was still alive, which was still rings true today, is I just want to keep on going until the next treatment or the next research advance comes out so I can continue to improve my quality of life to be able to treat X, Y, and Z. And I think that, but that takes patience and it's, it's hard to have that. It is. It's hard because like you said it, and particularly if it's a condition where mortality is very high. You know, obviously, you want a, a response much sooner. But I think there are, again, so many important things that you touched on here as far as the getting what we nutritionally need from a well-balanced diet is what we all in our heads know. You know, when we say, what do we need to do? We know that we need to eat a healthy, well-balanced diet and we need to exercise regularly to mm -hmm. maintain our health. And the problem is those two things are hard to do. And speaking from experience, and mm -hmm. that we know that, the, so that's what we do it. And then again, then there's other things that have come about to help and assist in those areas. But for those listening, if you really want to take steps to improve your health and well-being, whether it's your bone health, your cardiovascular health, preventing diseases, all of those things, really working on 
building a healthy habit of eating a well-balanced diet with lots, like you said, lots of colors, lots of variety of food, everything in moderation, and doing the regular exercise. And what regular exercise means is a little different for everybody, but there's plenty of studies about that. We had a fantastic event just recently in New York where we had a a sports medicine physician talking about movement yeah. as medicine. Fantastic. It's, it's the same thing. There's so many things we can do when it comes to our diet that will improve our health that doesn't require supplementation. And, yeah. you know, it's just a variety and all of those things. But again, that's a little bit, that's a little bit more difficult. And what we're talking about here and what I think science is trying to help us figure out is when that's not possible for people or I'll give an example. In my instance, I am severely vitamin D deficient. And there's no amount of consuming vitamin D as like right. a, in a food or sardines or whatever I would do that would get me where I need to be. So supplementation is required for me. But what my level of supplementation is, is very different from what yours would be, what any listeners would be. So it really, as you said, we have to take what we learn from these giant studies and then sort of have those conversations with our healthcare providers about, so how does this apply to me? What do I need in my diet that's going to help me maintain my health? And so it's so yeah. helpful, though, to talk with you about how these studies happen and what their goal is so that we can then start to make sense of, oh, when we see that headline, how to read past the headline to, well, what is this actually saying about the impact on my life? And, uh, and that's very, very different. It's important to remember that when we talk about lifestyle change, it does not have to be in leaps and bounds, even small incremental steps, making a conscious effort to have a fruit or a vegetable one or more times per day. It's little things that add up, and I think people often don't appreciate it. It's a difficult ask. We're all kind of creatures of habit with the things that we do day to day. But then there's also a psychology to it. And this is true, especially with like thinking about my work in the past in calcium and vitamin D research with supplements is that a lot of times you start taking supplements in particular, which are not officially regulated in the way that we'd want to by the Food and Drug Administration, not in the way that a prescription medication might be like an antihypertensive for that matter. But a lot of times you'll start taking a supplement and there is a real placebo effect. And this kind of happens with lots of things, not just supplements. There's a perception that, you know, maybe I am feeling better, but it definitely isn't hurting me. So if it can't hurt me, then maybe it can only help me. So the other piece of this is there are real financial impacts of, you know, some of the supplements that you will find on the market, especially some of the, I'm not sure if I should call them fancier or at least better advertised, they can get pretty costly too. And I would much rather see someone spend, instead of spending tens of dollars per month on supplements, invest in a go to a healthcare, you know, a health club or invest in better food choices. And, and there, there are many other ways to invest wisely, not just personally, but also financially in how you approach health. Um, it's, so it's, it's a subtle but important point. I know it it's pervades not just thinking about bone health, of course, but yeah, no, across the board, that. right. And then it can get really, really expensive. And then some people that's just not possible. And as you said, there are low cost, no cost things that can be done that could potentially provide the same value as the supplement. 
Let's talk a little bit more because, again, I think that is something that's confusing to consumers as well when we talk about that there's no real regulation around dietary supplements. So what advice can you offer about what potentially to look for or what are things to watch out for when someone is considering or thinking about or even reading things about the newest supplement that's come to market that everyone says is so, you know, earth shattering. Yeah. You know, I think if you're in a position where you feel like you're, you need to be taking a particular dietary supplement and it's after you've consulted with your primary care physician or specialist or a registered dietitian or anyone for that matter, my first rule of thumb is generally go with the main brands that you are aware of. If you go to a, a standard store, pick the brands that are known to you or of companies that are more reputable. It helps ensure, at least in terms of the safety concerns, that whatever the amount is, is actually there. At least you have a greater reassurance of that. The thing that gets tricky with dietary supplements, as you correctly point out, is that there really aren't any, anyone can basically produce a supplement and encapsulate something or put it into a powder or a gel or a gummy or whatever your preference is. And they can put on different types of claims without actually proving them. There's what we call nutrient content claims. So this, you know, we have this much of calcium, this much of vitamin D. Totally fair. You're saying you have something like a high or a low amount of it. You can talk about how calcium builds strong bones. Well, that's great, but that doesn't necessarily translate to taking a supplement and whether that's actually going to improve the strength of your bones directly. It's just saying calcium builds strong bones. Okay. Mm-hmm. And then a lot of time in all these products, you have a statement from the FDA that typically would say, you know, this statement has not been evaluated by the FDA and that, and this particular product is not really trying to diagnose, treat, or cure or prevent any disease. That's because the, there's no way the FDA can reasonably try and regulate every single supplement that comes onto the market to see if it actually prevents disease or lowers blood pressure or increases 25-hydroxy-D levels. There are some qualified health claims that are out there in which the manufacturer has to provide actual evidence that something works. But even those, when you see them on labels, will often be very qualified. It's qualified health claim. It's mm-hmm. it might say something like, this may reduce the risk of fracture, not right. definitive. So for that reason, if you're going to choose to take a supplement, my first thing is try and go with at least some of the major brands that you might recognize. The second piece that I would advise is if you're going to take something, keep the amounts in the moderate range. Don't go for the highest amounts because we don't always have the safety studies. And that's true with calcium and vitamin D. If we take too much of that, we know there are some adverse health effects that come from that too. The other thing is to be aware of what else might have been thrown into the pill without you realizing why it's there. This happens a lot with some of the herbals. You'll see those often added into not as much calcium or vitamin D, but some of the multivitamin supplements or even some of the ones that are touting bone health along with like a multivitamin, multi-mineral complex. Yeah, yeah. There's a lot of those now that, you know, it's, it's this all-in-one pill to improve bone health or brain health. And as you said, yeah. you don't know what's in there. Right. So, I mean, it's good to read the labels, of course, but, you know, I think try to be focused on the purpose and not 
getting the add-ins that are there without really knowing what that's doing. So, you know, I think that's my general advice. If you do choose to take a dietary supplement, to be mindful of those things, more expensive is not necessarily better. And nowadays, there are many supplement producers that you can find online where they might ask you a series of questions about your health status and why you might be interested in taking a supplement. And magically, and I don't know if they're calling it AI yet, but but they'll magically spit out a thing that says, we have the perfect, this is a customized supplement for you. It's personalized for your needs. Sure, but we don't really know how that translates to any actual health benefits. Yeah. So you have yeah. to be, you know, it's kind of a buyer beware scenario. It's not to say that you shouldn't take supplements, but you want to be relatively simple in your selections to the extent that you can and not, not go overboard. Yeah. Be a really, be a cautious and informed consumer, particularly about something that you're ingesting, right? Yeah. That just makes, makes great sense for that. So I said, there's like a million questions that I would still want to go over with you, but uh, we're almost out of time. So I, I just want to ask, you know, so from your perspective then on, uh, you know, the future of research, where do you see things going when it comes to nutrition studies or where are the major gaps or where would you like to see it go? Yeah. So I think first and foremost, we just don't simply have enough clinical trials. So whether it's in the space of bone health or other areas of aging and health outcomes, we just need more of these trials. If we use the Women's Health Initiative as a, as a working example, you know, I started by describing kind of going through the details of the main study. But in fact, the beauty of the Women's Health Initiative is that it's spawned hundreds upon hundreds of other papers, not just in the area of bone health, but also diving deeper into the question. There are ways that we can leverage the existing trials that have been done, not just the Women's Health Initiative, but other trials such as the VITAL trial, which tested 2,000 IUs of vitamin D daily. We have a main finding, but we can still dig deeper and learn even more within the context of that clinical trial, which is extremely useful. The other thing that I think we need to do with our clinical trials is really understand the role of, for example, 25-hydroxy-D. It still is a very much a hot-button issue. Mm-hmm. Do you measure it? Do you not measure it? What does it reflect? How can we change it? Whether it's changes in diet, changes, you know, if it's, is it a vitamin D supplement? Is it getting an injection? Is it other ways you can try and move the needle up? What's still a little unclear is whether the change in 25-hydroxy-D itself carries benefits. So we see that we can increase it, but what does that mean from a clinical standpoint? Does it actually reduce your risk of perhaps fractures, hip fractures, bone health more broadly, and other health outcomes, of course? But that's where we can leverage the existing trials, the Women's Health Initiative, the vital trial, other trials that have been done to dig even deeper because the advantage of the clinical trials is that you're at least randomly saying, I get the active, you get the placebo, let's see what happens. So there's opportunity still to really dig deeper into the existing work that's been done, but still adding the new trials to help move the science forward. Ultimately, it's individualized. This has to be an individualized recommendation. This, the idea that there's a global recommendation to have a certain amount of calcium or vitamin D to lower one's risk, uh, to improve bone health in broad ways and more specific ways is, I'm not going to quite call it folly, but I think it's, it's way too general. We need to figure out how to bring that to the individual patient so that when you're seeing your doctor, your doctor can actually give you personalized recommendations for your bone health. 
that's across the board and everything. That's really the goal now, right? But the hot topic of that precision medicine, the individualized medicine, and how do the advances that we are making in science help to do that, where we're getting closer to what's right for me specifically, and then what's right for you specifically. And so it's exciting that at least that has become the goal that people are working towards. And we're starting to see how we do that versus, you know, like we used to do where, well, women are really hard to study. So we're going to study men and then we'll just apply it and say, this is well, this is what we think what you should do for women. You know, we've gone beyond that now, thankfully, in some areas, we need to continue to do that in all of these areas. So I want to, first of all, just again, thank you, Dr. Sesso, for for being here and talking with us about this important thing, but also just for the work that you do. And I love where you said, you know, you don't, you're not born thinking, I want to be a epidemiologist, but it's so important that we encourage people to seek out careers in the sciences and in medicine and in all of these things, because we learn so much from these important studies. And if you weren't dedicating your life to this and your career to this, then we wouldn't be benefiting from it. So I think we need to get a lot more children out there knowing how to say epidemiology and what it means and moving them in that direction. So that would be great. So again, thank you so much. I'm sure we'll have you back as a guest in the future to talk through more of these questions. As I said, this is something that continues to be an area that patients are really interested in. And we want to make sure that we're able to create those empowered patients who advocate for themselves because they know more about what type of questions to ask for themselves. So again, thank you for being here. We'll have links associated to some of the things that we've been talking about, and certainly more about the Women's Health Initiative and the VITAL study, along with this episode of Bone Talk. And for more information about how to keep your bones strong and healthy for life, please visit us at bonehealthandosteoporosis.org. I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I did. And if you did, please do two things. One, subscribe to Bone Talk so you never miss an episode. And two, please share it with your family and friends so they know that this resource is available. Thanks again to my wonderful guest, Dr. Howard Sesso, and thank you for listening. Thank you for joining Bone Talk, the Bone Health and Osteoporosis Foundation's podcast that shares information, strategies, and inspiration about good bone health that makes active aging possible. To learn more about bone health, to become involved and or help fuel BHOF's mission with financial support, visit bonehealthandosteoporosis.org. 